The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. I'm joined once again by Dr. Linda Livingstone, Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, the Dean's Executive Leadership Series is up and running. You've had some great guests so far. Tell us about the uh, guest you're going to uh, visit with today. Well, now we have Ed Wedbush with us, who is the founder of Wedbush Securities. And his is really one of the sort of classic entrepreneurial stories of Los Angeles and really of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, so it will be a fascinating discussion. Well, we look forward to that. Uh, let me invite our listeners just to sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Ed Wedbush, founder of Wedbush Securities. Well, welcome to our first Dean's Executive Leadership Series of 2013. We are just thrilled to have with us today Mr. Ed Wedbush, who is the founder and president of Wedbush Securities. And, uh, this is certainly a uh, one of the kind of preeminent entrepreneurial firms in Los Angeles, as well as a highly regarded financial services firm. So, Ed, it's just a real pleasure to have you with us here today. It's my pleasure. Indeed, it's a great pleasure to be out here on the campus and to see what's going on here and to participate in your program. Well, we appreciate that. We love showing off our campus to folks. It's a beautiful place to be. So. It's very unusual in the entire United States. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mentioned that your firm is an entrepreneurial firm. It's still privately owned, and you are one of the two founders of that company. Would you share with our listeners a bit of the story of the founding of the company? And then we could talk more about sort of how you went from there to where you are today. But I'd love for them to hear the founding story. I'll be glad to do that. You mentioned that we were a privately owned company. I do want to point out that we have 480 shareholders. And while that's not a public company, it, it still has a broad ownership base, mm -hmm. other than the two persons who started it. A gentleman that I went to high school with in St. Louis, Missouri, Robert Werner, uh, he went to St. Louis University. I went to the University of Cincinnati, and we met again at, upon graduation and decided to start a brokerage uh, firm. Mm -hmm. His father, who was a CPA, opposed that because he was, thought the risks were very high and of bankruptcy and so on. But we started it with $10,000. Mm -hmm. 5000 we each put up into the firm. Uh, when you look back on it, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but nevertheless, that's all we had, and we wanted to be in the brokerage business, so we started it, and we enjoyed a first year of business with $659 of revenues, and grew from Not there. a very good return on your investment that first year. Well, we, the thing about it is we managed it in such a manner that we made a profit. That's Well, that's good. That's pretty good, then. <laughs> Now, I hear that the story of how you picked the name was that you guys flipped a coin, and whoever lost had the company named for them. Now, that's kind of an odd story for naming. Is that an accurate depiction of what you did? Yes, exactly accurate. And I think that, that each one of us perhaps wanted our name on the door, but at the same time, we feared a negative conclusion identified with the name. So I was rooting for Werner, and Werner was rooting for Wedbush, and we bounced the coin on the kitchen table, and the rolled off onto the floor, and I, I lost the toss, so it became Wedbush and Company. Which uh, seems to have been a good decision, and it has paid off over the we, years. We certainly don't regret it at this point. That's great. Well, now, it's interesting because you were an engineering major at right. University of Cincinnati, but yet right out of college, so did you, you never 
practiced your engineering degree, it doesn't sound like. Or did you do that before you started the securities firm? Or? We started the securities firm technically on June the 30th, 1955. But concurrently, I had won a Howard Hughes scholarship to continue in engineering. So I worked as an engineer okay. at Hughes Aircraft here in Culver City, California, and um, went to graduate school in business, right. and then went on to PhD work back in engineering mm -hmm. for four years. So I worked as, in engineering at Wagner Electric in St. Louis when I was undergraduate, and worked as an engineer for Hughes, mm -hmm. and traveled to air bases around the country. And I loved engineering, but in my heart was the business capitalism and securities mm -hmm. markets, and so I pursued what was in my heart. Wonderful. But like many entrepreneurs, you had a sort of a real job as you started your entrepreneurial effort with the securities firm for a while. Yes, yeah. I did. I, I was I had a while I was in graduate school I had a part time job mm -hmm. as an engineer at Hughes Aircraft mm -hmm. and and so on. So wonderful. Well you have been in this business for nearly sixty years and so you have seen a lot in the business world and in the financial services industry and lots of ups and downs in the market. Uh, would you say that what we've kind of been going through the last five years is the most significant kind of financial challenge that you've seen in all those years? Or how would you kind of compare what you've been through in the last few years with what you'd seen before? In any presentations that I make internally in our firm or externally, I talk about the, the last three to four years or five years and I agree with the, your observation. It is a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I sit back and kind of wonder if it has to do with my age and then I'm thinking more seriously about these things. But then I look at some of the statistics and the numbers, mm -hmm. uh, debt as an example, right. the U.S. debt, and I can't get my arms around it. So I'm positive about business and securities markets, but I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the indebtedness that the United mm -hmm. States has incurred and what it's likely to incur going forward. Yeah. Well, so, but your firm has really actually weathered the last few years fairly well compared to a lot of the financial services firms. What about your strategy allowed you to uh, sort of um, manage differently through that and be imp impacted uh, maybe less severely than some of the other firms? The most serious thing, uh, let's say, philosophy and policy that dominated our uh, work was the reduced or non-use of leverage. Okay. And when I saw what some of the firms were doing, where they'd have $1 of equity and they would have 15 to $20 of debt, just the ratio, I was astonished. Uh, in our firm, we didn't, we didn't use debt mm -hmm. uh, at all uh, as we were growing. Of course, we probably couldn't afford to do that to take the chance. But in more recent years, when our firm's net worth has grown in excess of $300 million, we still have continued not to leverage mm -hmm. or use the firm. Uh, firm for debt purposes. We do borrow money occasionally from banks when we have settlements of very large underwritings. Right. But uh, the 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 lack of use of debt and leverage, in my opinion, was the most important strategy that helped us grow positively during these challenging periods of the last few years. To what extent, the fact do you believe that the fact that you're still a privately held company, even though you do have shareholders, has allowed you to do that versus? Uh, many of the large financial services companies that are publicly traded, or has that had much impact on that decision? I, I've thought about that question, and from my point of view, it seems to not have significant impact, but in reality, it may very well have had significant impact. The pressure that comes 
uh, from uh, shareholders and uh, from the regulators on public companies is considerably different than private companies. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing that right now because we started the bank approximately three to four years ago, Wedbush Bank, and uh, now that since the law has changed, we formerly were under the Office of Thrift Supervision, called mm-hmm. OTS. We're now under the Federal Reserve, okay. and the Federal Reserve is uh, omnibus in its uh, regulation and in its inspections and so on, and we are being treated uh, exactly like a public company right. would, be, would be treated. Mm-hmm. So you were commenting on the large debt that our country faces. Um, What's your sense, and I certainly don't intend this to be a politically loaded question, but in terms of, from your perspective as an expert in the financial world, what do you think the right steps are going forward to help us sort of get out of that place over time? We should contract our use of debt dramatically, even though there is a big negative associated with that, to the extent that the government uh, spends less on a variety of activities, that can be a negative uh, a business stimulator rather than a positive. And so that's a concern. But just like any individual family or a person uh, getting out of college with a significant debt, they have these problems and they've got to deal with it. And the way to deal with it is to pay down debt to live or operate a business at a profit. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. government should is no different. The U.S. government did that during, uh, during the Clinton administration, interestingly. For four years it was a positive uh, mm-hmm. Operation right. part of the Reagan administration, they did the same thing. Even though when Reagan was governor of California, he ran the biggest deficits in the history of the mm-hmm. state at that time. Right. And and so my view is that the solution comes uh, for the United States government the same way that it comes for other businesses and families. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I wonder sometimes is if we do a very good job in business schools of helping our students understand the linkages between the public sector and the private sector or understanding how they as business people uh, should or can uh, be engaged in kind of the public policy process because it impacts not just what they do in business but in the rest of their lives as well. Do you have any kind of perspectives on kind of the role business people should play in public life and in influencing public policy? It's my opinion that uh, business people should be involved. Uh, They should be involved on a broad and open basis as opposed to a uh, political basis for their own benefit, if you will. Uh, Business people that are successful and that are in business uh, uh, demonstrate how it can be done, and that needs to be demonstrated to city, state, and U.S. governments, uh, in my opinion. And, Mm -hmm. And so that talent needs to be used. If we stand away from it and the state of California, as an example, or the U.S. government uh, gets into economic difficulty, then all of us individually in our businesses are going to be uh, clearly sharing that, that difficulty. Right. And right now we've got this major, major growth of the China, Chinese government, mm-hmm. its business activities, and its ownership of more U.S. debt than any other country. Mm-hmm. And um, that's a pretty serious situation. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what the long-term implications of that are, and it's hard to predict right now what that's going to be. Some of the economists are predicting that in, in due course, and they're talking five to 20 years out, that the uh, China uh, government will own most of the U.S. business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to change the direction of the question just a little bit. We talked earlier that you've been in business for nearly 60 years, so I want you to kind of reflect back 
over that time. And what would you say you have enjoyed most about sort of your life at Wedbush Securities? What has been most rewarding for you during your time in the company? That's a thoughtful question, and I have to think a little bit of, uh, deeply about it. My quick, my first reaction, of course, is that the people part of it, we've grown from two people to a thousand approximately, mm-hmm. and the people relationships, some of them are 35 and 40 years. Um, uh, that's really, mm-hmm. uh, really a good part of it. Yeah. And it's, it goes deeper than even in your neighbor neighborhood relationships. You're, you work with these people and you deal with these people and you go through trials and tribulations. I would say that that's a significant uh, part of the good feeling. Mm-hmm. The, of course, the other thing, the most important thing, is the fact that we're serving clients. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that we preach financial safety and the fact that we uh, custodian their assets in a manner that's very, very protective, uh, that's, that's a, an item of pride, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, being able to grow the business in the United States economically and then to be able to expand it geographically and then now, more recently, to go internationally. We've joined the London Stock Exchange and the mm-hmm. Warsaw Stock Exchange in Poland, and those are thrilling things uh, to do. Mm-hmm. We, I, I like the idea of growth, but I also believe that it has to be controlled right. growth in order to maintain the economic uh, mm-hmm. stability. Mm-hmm. As you look back over those years, what would you say, if you could sort of pick one or two key pieces of wisdom you've gained through your years or one or two key lessons that you've learned that might be beneficial to our students that are listening or our alums that are listening that may be fairly early in their careers? To me, economic balance and controls are the critical thing that I've learned. Uh, Whether you only have $10,000 to start a business or whether you have a million dollars, whatever. We know that in the United States, many businesses that start going from private to, say, public, they're losing money, and then they continue to lose money, and how many of those businesses ultimately fail? And then in business schools, the rate of failure is generally statistically known and talked about. And so I think that my learning process includes the importance of understanding the profit-loss statement Mm -hmm. being profitable and that the balance sheet of the firm and its equity being solid and under tight control is the most important thing that I've learned about stability, mm-hmm. control, and then the opportunity to grow and go right. forward. We have a large number of students in our program and certainly a lot of alums that are want to be entrepreneurs or are entrepreneurs. And so you've sort of been very successful at doing that. You now have, I think, some of your family members. I think a couple of your sons run some of the divisions of the company. And that can be a, a challenging thing for an entrepreneur to bring family members in and to sort of transition elements of the company. What have you learned from that that has allowed you to be successful? How is that, you know, how do you make it work with family members involved in what you're doing? It's an excellent question. And I've gone through this process with with a lot of help from directors of the company. In, initially, I made a personal commitment that I was anti-nepotism totally <laughs> and that people in the family would not work in the company because I'd seen the negativity of that elsewhere. Right. And so I thought to myself, well, we're not going to have this. I'm anti-nepotism. Our sons are going to go to work in competitive firms or wherever they want to do. And one of our directors, Ross Cobb, who was the uh, former president of Sutro Company that was born in the 1850s, uh, was on our board of directors, and he advised me that I was wrong. 
and he, he asked for permission to talk with our sons and see what their interests might be, and mm-hmm. I said, yes, go right ahead and talk with them. As a consequence of that most important piece of advice, uh, both sons ended up coming into the firm, and now one of the sons is actually president of the parent company right. of, the, of the activity. I'm president of a subsidiary, Wedbush Securities, which constitutes about 85% mm-hmm. of the economics of the total enterprise. And the other son is the executive VP of the capital markets area. And they people know that I've had this very objective thought process about nepotism. And so that, that what that's done is helped the behavior pattern of the two sons. They recognize that as well. And they want to be sure that there's no image that mm-hmm. they're receiving some special favoritism because of a relative uh, relationship. And what's really important about it is, from my point of view, that other people in the company, if they believe that nepotism prevails and they believe that they don't have an opportunity mm-hmm. to advance to executive EP or president, uh, then they're, they're not going to necessarily want to stay with us. So we have projected that image that it's wide open and mm-hmm. that uh, the two Wedbush children, as an example, have the same opportunity and the same challenges as, as other executives do. You know, um, we can, we've reflected back on your years at the company. I want us to sort of project forward a little bit and ask you to look into the crystal ball. Um, as you look forward, you know, for the next 60 years of kind of what happens in financial services, what do you think some of the biggest challenges are going to be for companies like yours uh, going forward? Another thoughtful question. And I've, I've thought a little bit about this. And instead of looking forward 60 years, what I tend to do is to look forward 5 to 10 mm-hmm. years. It's probably a safer and, thing and, to do. And, yes. it, well, because it's more realistic to mm-hmm. deal with challenges in that time period mm-hmm. than sure. to deal with something that's 50 years out because you'll be dealing, dealing with something that the solution that you have for won't be of any merit, right. in my opinion. The, the, the idea that the world, in many respects, particularly economically, is going international is really prevalent. Mm-hmm. The, the, the technology, the computer-to-computer communications, uh, which since I was an engineer and we didn't have that back at that time, we didn't even have semiconductors when we first started, but that computer-to-computer communication thing is really serious. And as we all know from the things that we see, uh, we know how important it's going to be now and going forward. The, the other thing is the international economics in terms of, of uh, monetary systems. Uh, the European Union is an example of that with a common currency called the euro. And uh, they're having a lot of difficulties mm-hmm. and struggling through that. But that's okay because that's, a, in my opinion, a big experiment uh, and a practice that will become worldwide. So to start with that, however, those of us in this country who deal in the U.S. dollar, we need to be able instantly to deal in in foreign currencies. Mm-hmm. And at some point in time, those foreign currencies have to become unified with the dollar. So whether it's called the dollar or the yuan or whatever it's called, I think that the the having a universal currency would be really interesting mm-hmm. because interesting. that would put people everywhere on a somewhat more similar mm-hmm. uh, playing field and uh, competitively uh, similar mm-hmm. as well. So the currency thing is, is important. Also, the next most important thing, or maybe even the most important thing, is the politics still. The world is, uh, I would like to think, has gotten smarter, but when you see what goes on uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, murders and so on in mm-hmm. different countries and 
the victims and so on, what goes on in Afghanistan today, which has been going on for hundreds of years in Afghanistan. It's shocking that people are still behaving that way. In China, we have a real good example of that, where we've got a communist uh, regime that's trying to to uh, uh, operate as a capitalistic uh, country uh, concurrently. And there's some success with that, but there's also some, some, some challenges that are uh, coming out there. But I, I'm, I have a positive view that the world's going to be more uh, unified economically. It's going to follow the European Union, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, the negative part of it, my concern, is that the dollar goes downhill rather than up because the U.S. government is not behaving economically in the way, in my opinion, it should. Interesting. Well, well, we'll watch and see what happens in the next few years and see how good your crystal ball was. Um, you know, there's there's a lot in the news now about the kind of the character of business people and CEOs, and we tend to see a lot about the ones that make mistakes. We don't oftentimes get to hold up the ones that are making wise decisions. That doesn't make very good news sometimes. And, you know, one of the things that people have come, uh, there's been a lot of press about is the compensation for executives, those sorts of things, mm-hmm. and sort of the extravagant lifestyles that they can sometimes mm-hmm. lead. Uh, you have a reputation for being very frugal. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> What's your sense of, um, from a your perspective, um, kind of what values really need to underlie uh, the people at the highest levels in the organization as they leave? What are some of the key values that are important to set the right example for how we should be doing business? I believe that executives at my position and executives of much larger companies need to really address the question you're raising. It's an excellent challenge because in the United States, the gap between what some executives are paid and people down the line, uh, the multiples have gone up dramatically from two or three to one to maybe 50 or 100 to one. And the numbers aren't useful because you can't spend that much money right. in your life anyway. It's kind and, of a way of keeping count more than it is or, or keeping score in yes, some ways. Yes, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's, it's uh, it, what it causes, in my opinion, to use this phrase, I believe that it's a, that it's a source of class warfare. A pretty serious statement, mm-hmm. and it's a really a strong point that I've been following. As an example, uh, John Chambers, who's the president of Cisco, mm-hmm. a much larger company than we, uh, he keeps his compensation at a very modest level. He's mm-hmm. well rewarded right. for being president of a successful company, but it's not out in the blue somewhere where you look at the numbers and say, I don't understand this. And when they have any economic period of time where they have difficulty, he takes his salary to a dollar a year. Mm-hmm. Now, I took my lesson from Chambers, and I've done the same thing. Two times in the last 10 years, I've taken my compensation down to a dollar per year mm-hmm. because I thought that was the appropriate thing mm-hmm. to do. And so we operate in a, in a way that the relationship between the most senior executives and other people in the company and in the world, so to speak, there, there's not class warfare. The economics are fair and square. And when you look at somebody's life and you're towards the tail end of it, to think that you should have been paid 50 times more than someone at a modest or lower mm-hmm. level who does hard work every day, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. So that's why I use the term class warfare, and I fear that the behavior of the executive compensation system could lead to class warfare. Mm-hmm. Well, it'll be interesting to see over time what boards choose to do about that, and frankly, whether regulation starts to have more of an impact on that than it has historically. It should be the boards of directors. Right, exactly. It needs to be self-regulated. Yes, instead of having regulators tell the boards what the compensation formulas or limits should be, it should be the directors. And I don't understand 
why the directors are so far out of touch. It appears that they hire these as consulting firms to go study what the compensation is somewhere else, and then to be competitive, they have to uh, mm. exceed it. I, I looked at one executive here of a California-based company who was being paid $100 million per year for the last several years. Wow. And I'm not going to name the company mm. here today, but nevertheless, I wouldn't even... I wouldn't touch that mm-hmm. company's stock at all. Well, and if the boards don't do it, the government will at some well, point. And that's the challenge. Uh, you're, make, you're making a good point. So where we don't take care of things, then the government has mm-hmm. to do it. They're the court of last resort. And then that's a, that's a, that's a step downward, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. Well, as we sort of start to bring to a close our discussion, um, you have, your company has been ranked by Barron's as a number one stock-picking company several times. And so I have no doubt that those listening would love to hear any what wisdom you have about favorite stock picks or investing tips. Uh, mm-hmm. Not too many times we get to pick a person's brain like yours to, to get some wisdom here. So what, what advice might you have for our listeners? Well, are you suggesting that I actually list individual securities or that I respond in a more general way? Uh, why don't we start with a more general way? And then if you have some special individual securities okay. that you like a lot, I think they'd probably be interested in that. Yeah. Well, the research department of our firm, which is located in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, and has one or two people in other cities as well, does a lot of deep digging. Mm -hmm. And they look at companies on a very broad basis in terms of industry and in terms of size. So the companies that are in our so-called best pick uh, Mm -hmm. listing that you mentioned, uh, best ideas, is uh, comprised of companies that are in the so-called small cap category, micro cap, middle size, mm-hmm. and some very large companies. As an example, uh, eBay is a, a larger company. Mm-hmm. The market capitalization is on our current list of, uh, of uh, best ideas. And Clean Harbors, a company which maybe a lot of people have never heard of, mm-hmm. uh, is, is on the list. It's, it's been a public company for quite a long time. Uh, we've had various financial institutions and banks which have gone through some strenuous difficulties right. over the last uh, five years or so, and we've had th- them on our list as well. Our list is dynamic, and it changes from uh, literally from month to month, but it doesn't change every month, but it's reviewed every month. Currently, there are 10 securities on our listing. Well, interestingly, I'm looking at the listing here, and I see one at the number 10 on the list, which is a company called Headwaters. HW is the stock exchange symbol, and that's been on the list. But just a few days ago, the company announced uh, that they were being acquired by another company at a premium. Mm -hmm. So that increases the uh, performance as well. I I have my own list of securities that I've developed over the years, and it's it's at least 50 in number, and I pay a lot of attention. It's my own list as well as our firm's listing of securities. And I've had different... uh, interest in securities in terms of industry. I was very much in favor of the banking industry uh, uh, 10, 15 years ago. I uh, withdrew from that uh, subsequently. But in the last three or four years, I've actually gotten back into the banking, the financial institutions industry. And so where the banks are likely to survive, there are many of them that are selling at a 20 to 50 percent of tangible book value. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, I would recommend that group. I think uh, there's some upside there after all that they've been through. Yes, yeah. because the yeah. ones that we're going to get uh, left out are already gone, right. uh, so to speak. Or the stock is selling at 10 or 20 or 30 cents a share, and that's an indicator that those companies' uh, securities are not going to be attractive going forward. 
I've been a strong uh, uh, proponent of the housing mm-hmm. industry stocks going back about a year, year and a half ago and started accumulating some significant positions for clients uh, in that area. But what's happened in the last two months, the housing stocks have gone up dramatically. And while I still am in favor of that industry, I'm a little bit reluctant to recommend the housing stocks uh, today because they've had 100 to 200 percent appreciation wow. in, in, some, in, in some of the groups. The technology industry, I've always generally liked that industry, and there are still some strong technology companies out there where they're selling at prices that are much more reasonable than what they sold at in 2000, right before the uh, technology uh, crash. And I would look at those. I would not be a fan or a recommender of the so-called large Internet stock companies. They've had dramatic runs in the last two years, and there's just too much risk in those securities. Some of them are selling between $100 and $550 per share, and uh, they look attractive if their earnings each quarter keep growing like they have in the last couple of years, but there's risk there, so I wouldn't uh, go after that group of securities. Well, very fascinating insight into kind of your perspective on the stocks. We so appreciate having you with us. It is a pleasure to hear about your experience and to learn from you. So thank you so much, Ed, for joining us for our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. It's my pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Well, into that uh, conversation certainly didn't disappoint. That was fascinating. Well, Ed has a wonderful story to tell. When you have a company like his that started with uh, $659 in revenues and has grown to the prominence it has today, uh, you can't help but be impressed with what he's Absolutely. done. Absolutely. That's right. So it was a great evening, and he just did an excellent job sharing his experience with our audience. Yeah. Well, uh, as we move forward and think about the next uh, series, tell us who you're going to be visiting with next. Well, our next guest is Gary Bernison. He is the CEO of Corn Ferry International, and I've actually had Gary speak in a class that I team taught this past summer. He is a fascinating individual, works in a fascinating industry with executive search, so I know he will bring a lot of insights to our audience. Yeah, valuable uh, insight to be sure. Well, we look forward to that. In the meantime, we'd like to invite our listeners to uh, learn more about the Dean's Executive Leadership Series by visiting our website at bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells. Until next time, thanks for listening.